And our scripture reading for this morning comes to us from Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We'll read the entire chapter, and our text will come from 1 Peter in chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Everybody's found the page. We'll begin Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness Let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, no covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. And therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, but he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife, as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Turning now to First Peter, uh, chapter three. First Peter chapter 3, and our text for today will be taken from verse 7. So I'll read only verse 7. And there we read, Husbands, likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. And specifically, uh, the second half, we, just, we covered the first sentence last week, husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding. Uh, so today we'll cover, beginning with giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. B.B. <clears throat> Warfield was a well-known uh, author, a seminary professor, but also a husband. And shortly after they were married... Him and his wife, Anna, they went to the mountains in Germany. He went for a walk, but they were caught in a severe thunderstorm. And it traumatized her so much, she never really recovered. She suffered some sort of a nervous breakdown that got worse and worse through their life. And as her condition became worse, B.B. Warfield had to care for his wife constantly, he would take her out on, on walks, and he would always be with her and help her until she eventually became bedridden, and she had to stay in the home and in her bed, and they never had any children. But he would spend even hours a day reading to her and spending time with her. And while he was a professor, he obviously needed to work and to teach, and so he'd walk to the seminary, and he'd uh, teach or preach, and he'd come back within two hours. He'd never leave her for more than that. But rather than hindering his work, God even used these circumstances to help him do his work. It gave him time to study. It gave him time to be alone in his house and to to study God's Word and to write. But in all this, he never failed to care for his wife. And so he became known not only for his gifts as a theologian. He has has many good writings, many articles he wrote against defending the truth. And, but he also is known for his being a caring and tender husband. And you would think that for a man like this, who had such a prominent position in a seminary, who was known for defending the truth of God's Word against the errors in this world, as there were many in those days, as there are now, and he had a great demand on his time for teaching or preaching, you would think a man like that would be 
it would be easy for him to overlook his duties at home. And that if he did not respect and honor his wife greatly, he would easily forget about her and let work take over everything. Because after all, he was a theologian. He was teaching other students. And you would think in this world, what has higher priority than teaching God's Word? And so we need to be careful. But he gave honor to his wife. And so until her death, you could see that the, the theology that he was learning and teaching were very practical. He saw, he saw working out in his life what he learned and what he taught from Scripture was seen in his, how he treated his wife. So giving honor to the wife. And last time, you remember, we focused on the understanding husband, the first sentence in this paragraph. And to, to be an understanding husband, we need to understand what that unity of the marriage is, that God creates that, that covenant bond, that unity between husband and wife. We need to understand what Scripture says of what marriage is, what family is, and how it must be conducted. We must understand ourselves as husbands. We must understand our own sins and our own weaknesses, our own need for grace, our own need for God to help us as a husband. And we need to understand our wife. But now in this second part, Peter goes on to say, giving honor to the wife. And we see two main reasons here that he that he gives why the husband must give honor to the wife. And the first is because they are the weaker vessel. God created them physically smaller or weaker, as it's called here. But secondly, because they are heirs together of the grace of life. And so our theme for this afternoon is simply giving honor to your wife. This morning, sorry giving honor to your wife. Now, giving honor simply means to respect, to respect your wife. The husband must have a high regard and a high respect, a reverent a respect for his wife. You can see in Proverbs 31 where the husband praises his wife, and the children call her blessed. And so, to respect or to honor our wife, Peter says we must first of all recognize the inequality between the roles and responsibilities of husband and wife. That's our first thought. Recognize the inequality in the roles and responsibilities or the design of men and women. Giving honor as to the weaker vessel. Now, this is not a negative word. This is not a slight against women that God didn't create men better than women. But this refers to how God created them, that women are generally smaller or physically weaker. They do not have the physical strength to do the same thing that men are called to do. And there's always exceptions, and there's degrees in both men and women. But this is not referring to intellectual ability or to spiritual graces, but simply to the physical stature and ability and duties. And so this recognizes the differences how God has created man and woman. And it shows, again, the unique bond of marriage that joins husband and wife to complement one another, to be there for one another. The weaker the wife, the stronger the husband really needs to be. And you can see that in the case of Benjamin Warfield, B.B. Warfield, 
the heavy load that he had to carry, not only in his work, but also in his marriage, to support his wife who suffered from her frailty. And so the husband must honor and respect the wife, recognizing her specific and particular needs. And so that is physically caring for her. It requires working, supporting the, the family financially. But it's not only in her work, but also includes in the home. The many responsibilities are around the home. We cannot simply delegate everything to the wife. But the father must be involved in the parenting and the work around the home. Men love to spend a lot of time at their work and, and stay away from those things, but that's our duty to be with the family. And even pastors need to be reminded of this. So. But then secondly, to honor our wife means to recognize, secondly, the equality between husband and wife. We must honor our wives because there's an equality between us, between husband and wife. We're both, Peter says, heirs together of the grace of life. God shows honor to the woman because as heirs of grace and so the salvation of God, that, that physical distinction really disappears. Both need to receive daily provision from God for this life, and we need grace for spiritual life, all coming from God. All t- heirs together of the grace of life. Everything that we need for life and eternity comes from God and is needed for both husband and wife. And the salvation is of the Lord. Jonah said, salvation of the, is of the Lord. He recognized God alone can save and the husband cannot save the wife, and the wife cannot save the husband. And that's what Peter was aiming at in these past verses as we discussed the wife's duties. And so we were, they were called to live in that godly submission, seeking the welfare, the eternal welfare of their husbands, seeking to draw them to Christ. And so we're called to live, as, as, to live with Christ as, as our example and that the grace of God might be evident in our own hearts and lives. And so there is that equality. If when you think that when both the husband and wife are saved by grace through faith in Christ, then you are, then you are united to Christ, then you're adopted into the family of God as children and heirs of the grace of God, and in Galatians 3 says, And there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then when it comes to spiritual matters, when you, you think of the husband and of the wife, that means before God we are simply nothing more than sinners in the need of grace, the grace of Christ. Sinners needing the grace of Christ, and that's a blessed place to be. It's a blessed place to be when the roles and responsibilities and the distinctions of the husband and the wife kind of fall to the side. And you can come as husband and wife together seeking the grace of God. But it's also an important place to be because it, it brings you to a place of humility in the gospel. That as Paul, we begin to see ourselves as the chief of sinners. Uh, even as we sit next to our spouse, that we are the chief of sinners. And then how can there be any negative thoughts, any, 
any oppression, any domineering attitude toward our spouse if we recognize ourselves first of all as the ones first and foremost in need of God's grace. If we see ourselves then so unworthy even of receiving the least of God's grace, how then can we ever say anything demeaning to our wife? But then giving honor to her, not simply in our duties around the house or work, but giving honor to the spouse, especially before God. And if God will look upon me in mercy, then certainly He will look upon her in mercy, that she may find favor with God. And if both are children and heirs of Christ, if we think of what she means to Christ, if Christ honors her, even in a covenant sense, how much more must we honor her? Because God said, if we touch His people, it's like touching the apple of God's eye, so sensitive to the Lord. Are we then careful how we treat God's people? Are we then careful how we treat our, our spouses, husbands, or wives, or our children? Do we see them as belonging to the Lord? You can think of the the love and the grace and the mercy that the Lord Jesus showed to the Samaritan woman at the well. You remember the story, don't you? How this woman had five husbands and now the, woman, the man that she lived with was not her husband. And how many of us would write her off as, as a lost case, as, as a hopeless person? But here Christ comes to her and gives her the water of life. He is her spiritual husband. Can Christ then not also give that water of life to our spouse, to our children, to ourselves? Will He not show mercy to them? And how then can we treat them any less than Christ would? So to honor our wife is to consider them more worthy of Christ's love than we are ourselves. Because if we ever think to place ourselves above our wife spiritually, then we've become a Pharisee. The Pharisees despise those Samaritans. The Pharisees just looked down on unfaithful women, and they prided themselves in their own outward appearance, and they tried to justify their own sins. But then thirdly, giving honor to our wives recognizes the kingly duty of the husband. The kingly duty of the husband. Because of his office, the king has, has a duty. He has a responsibility to his nation, and he has a certain power and authority that comes with it. And a king who uses his, his office properly respects his people. He represents them to the world, you could say. The Israelites praised David. They, they followed David because he had shown himself to be an effective leader as he, he led the army in, in battle against the Philistines. And later, they made him their king. And when he became king, it says the hearts of the people were united to the king. In 2 Samuel 5, it says all the tribes of Israel came to him and said, we are your bone and your flesh. We want you to be our king. You led Israel out and you brought him in. You led him 
They're using that shepherd language. David as a king was leading his people like a shepherd leads his sheep, and he was guiding them. And so the people joined themselves willingly to him as their king. They were one flesh, and that's a picture of marriage again. You willingly join together in that bond of marriage. You become one flesh. And young men especially, you learn this this respect when you are still young, before your marriage. Coming together physically is only permitted within that marriage bond that, that God gives. And anything outside of that marriage bond is sin. It's adultery. It's forbidden by God. And so the, the husband, he's to be that shepherd. He's to be that, that king, that servant leader under which the wife seeks that protection and seeks to follow her where he will lead, to follow him where he will lead. And so as long as David faithfully served in his role of king, he prospered. The nation prospered. The people followed him. But we can see that when he neglected his duty, when he stayed home, and he, as the army was out fighting, he stayed home in his palace. That's when he fell into sin. That's when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. That's when he failed to respect his people and Bathsheba. And so in God's created order, there's a natural desire, there's a natural tendency for the wife to entrust herself to the husband as the kingly and the shepherd leader. The weaker vessel has a a natural inclination to submit to the stronger. They're looking for that protection. They're looking for that provision, and God has designed it there between the husband and the wife in marriage. They're looking for that place of safety. And the stronger then gives that honor and respect to the wife, seeking, seeing it as their duty, as their responsibility, as their privilege to care for the wife. And so you can see this unity. There's the complementary roles that God gives within the marriage. It produces that peace and that trust and that unity together. And this makes us think of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is known as the stronger one, the one who delivers the captives and who relieves the oppressed and who who lifts up the downcast. He's the one who comes to his, His people. He honors and respects the weaker vessel for Him that is His church. Because all marriage is a picture of the church of Christ. He is the head. He is the husband. And His church is the the vessel, the weaker vessel, and He leads them and delivers them. He's that great shepherd who, who provides them with every spiritual blessing and physical blessing. He Himself laid down His life for His church. That old hymn, it says, The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. With His blood He bought her, and for her life He died. But now for a husband, fourthly, to honor his wife, to give honor to his wife, we must recognize the natural weaknesses, our failures and sins that we have as husbands. And the first one we can easily think of is male domination. This position of king can easily be misused like a tyrant king or a dictatorship, he would, he would rule with, with force or abusive power. But men are called specifically to honor and to love 
their wives with all tenderness, and all sin is, is, is hatred, and it's the opposite of love. It's the breaking of God's commandments rather than the keep, keeping of them. The obvious one is, is the, the, against the seventh commandment, even pornography. It uses, it abuses, it treats like animals those women that are victimized by it. And men misuse their authority when they look at pornography, when they treat women in that way. David uses authority to sin with Bathsheba, and all sin, all breaking of commandments is a misuse of the authority God has placed upon us. And so, men, if you use your power, your strength, or your authority to get your own way, to satisfy your own desires or lusts, you're abusing your position. There are many abusive tendencies that often go unnoticed or hidden, even in the church. And sometimes the husbands, they try to uh, use their authority to control their spouse. They either use guilt or, or shame or fear to control their spouse. They, they manipulate them to control what they can do. Instead of giving honor to the weaker vessel, they use their weakness to their own advantage. So if you are using your position as a husband to control the access of your wife to any finances, to the friends that she sees, to the activities that she might be involved in, or to limit what they can do, you are abusing your position. You are abusing your wife. And then the focus is all on yourself, on what you want, on what you are doing. You're using your wife for your own satisfaction, and you do not really care and honor, care about her or honor her. That's the opposite, the very opposite of what Christ said in Ephesians 5, as we read, where he said, Husbands, love your wives as yourself. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. An abuse of power is always taking for ourselves, and there's no giving, and certainly not the giving that Christ speaks of here is laying down her own life for her. And abuse in a Christian family is more heinous, a more terrible, horrible crime, because rather than being a light to the world, rather than following Christ as our example, it turns the very Scripture upside down, and it uses Scripture as a club, and it brings confusion to all around you. Marriage is that picture of Christ and His bride, Christ who gave Himself for her, the church. But abuse really is a picture of that slavery to sin, where they're in bondage to slavery. And often abusers, especially in the church, will use Scripture to their own advantage, they use it as a weapon to force their wives into compliance. They twist Scripture to the hurt of their spouses. They use the male headship and they call for the women to be submissive <clears throat> as a tool to dominate them <clears throat> and to run the home like a dictatorship. This is sin. This is abuse in the home. 
If you think of how God created the wife, she is the helpmate, the suitable helper for the husband. Heirs together of the grace of life. She has that vital and important role in the family, an integral part of the marriage. And if a husband doesn't listen to her, to hear her out, to, to hear her advice, he neglects her, he doesn't honor her. <clears throat> and that includes finances. Some men think that because they make the money, they make all the financial decisions. Now, sometimes one person will have a better idea of how to handle finances. Or the husband and the wife, they'll keep their money separate in separate pots. They'll spend their own money and consider it their own uh, freedom. But this goes back to the unity of marriage, doesn't it? That there's no mine in marriage, but there's ours. And even the financial decisions should be made together. What is best for each other, what's best for the family, and not just for myself. Now, we live in a culture where they promote the separation. If you go to the bank as a husband and a wife, they'll say, well, they'll, they'll tell the wife, say, you need your own bank account, because what if? And they'll, they'll try to make you set up your own separate ways. They set you up for failed marriage. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> but this unity, this oneness, Include this one flesh includes financial planning. Whatever you're keeping for yourself, you're not using for the for the welfare of the unity of the of your marriage. <clears throat> so that's the one hand is the male domination, but the other hand that we also see in many parts of our own country and our own hearts and around the world is the very opposite: is the male timidity or the the lack of Willingness to take up the responsibility by the husband, failing to take up the duty as the king and the shepherd and the leader. <clears throat> There's a lack of wanting to take up the responsibility to be the shepherd leader in the home or in the church. It can seem to be easy to be so busy with our work that that's our responsibility as a husband while we try to escape the real responsibility of a father and a husband. And so God calls men specifically to be leaders in the home, leaders in the church, and wherever else he may be called. And so husbands have been placed there for the welfare of the wife and family. And so is this something that we do, men? Do we, are we careful that we do not dominate and push our own way in this world? And are we careful that we do not neglect our duty, our God-given duty to lead, to take the responsibility? And young men, again, this starts before you're married. But then, fifthly, giving honor to our wife recognizes the priestly duty of the husband in the home. Because verse 7 continues as it says there, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. <clears throat> the father carries an office of priest in the home. You must not only pray for yourself, but on behalf of your loved ones. You must also 
carry your loved ones to God in prayer. This is your responsibility. You are the interceding priest of the family to, to bring them to God. This is our privilege. This is our responsibility. This is our calling. The Bible says men ought to pray. And he says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And so it comes back again to the picture and the, and the purpose of marriage that God had made. And the one purpose that God says is, yes, we're to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to have dominion over the earth, to fill the world with people, and to raise these children in the fear of the Lord, and to work to the glory of God. But more than that, as we read in Ephesians 5, it says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, and of his flesh, and of his bones. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Ephesians 5, or 32 says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each of you in particular, so love his own wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's a great mystery, Paul says, that unity between the husband and the wife, and that represents the church of Christ, that spiritual union with Christ. And this, that union is especially realized when, when we're called to come together in prayer, when we're called to come together to God in prayer. Because Matthew 18 says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be in the midst of them. Now, this verse, that chapter is referring specifically to the church and what is required in there, but it's also when two people come together in the presence of God. God is there. And the priest in the Old, temple, in the Old Testament would go to the temple. He would take the sacrifice that the family brought. He would bring the blood of the sacrifice to the, temp, to the tabernacle, and he would, he would bring it to the Lord as, as the prayers, as the, as the offering for their sins, and he would intercede for the people. And now the husband, you come to God pleading the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that one sacrifice for sin, that one full and complete sacrifice for all sin that is fully accepted by God the Father. And we come through Christ who now himself even sits in heaven making intercession for transgressors. And so the husband comes to God with his wife and his children to the Lord in prayer. What a responsibility, what a, what a, what a duty, what a high calling, and what a place of unity. What a place of peace coming together to the throne of grace as heirs together of the grace of life. That every good and perfect gift that comes from the Father above comes to each of you from God alone, both dependent on Him for our breath, for our life, for everything, both seeking that same grace, both seeking that same communion with the Father, both worshiping together in public or, or private. And so this should be the place of deepest communion with one another 
and with the Lord. But then, sixthly, giving honor to the wife recognizes the causes of our prayers being hindered. The causes of our prayers being hindered because Peter says that your prayers be not, may not be hindered. And for our prayers to be hindered, it means that they're cut off. This past week, I was having a, a Zoom meeting with someone, and we would speak for a while, and then we would end in prayer, but the, the internet was so interrupted, by the time we got to the end of the meeting, we couldn't continue. Our prayers were cut off. The internet was cut off. There was no more connection. And so when our prayers are hindered, it's like that, that network is down. Our prayers are hindered from reaching heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 5 that if our neighbor has anything against us, leave your offering and go, be reconciled first, and then come to God with your offering. And how much more then does that apply here for our spouse to be united so that our prayers are not cut off? When there's that brokenness in our marriage, when there's sin, when we harbor sin in our heart, then we'll not be able to pray as we ought. You'll be unable to come together as a husband and wife before the throne of God. You'll feel that barrier. You'll feel that hindrance in prayer. Maybe that something has made you angry. You're sinning in anger. You're as angry at your spouse. There may be a disagreement. Maybe you're angry at your children. Something went wrong, and there's unsettled nature in, in the house. There's misbehavior. And then you find it impossible now at the end of dinner to pray together with your children and your family. First, this has to be settled. First, it has to be reconciled. Or when you don't properly love your wife and you don't respect your wife, how can you pray earnestly for her before God? How can you bring her to God if your heartfelt desire and intent is not for her well-being? The purpose of prayer is not to tell God how, what's all wrong with your spouse or what needs to change with her. Or it could be a hindrance in prayer if the spouse doesn't submit lovingly to her husband. When there's bitterness, when there's contention, when there's anger towards one another. How can we pray for the decisions in our marriage if, if as husband and wife we can't agree on them? Do we just go our own way without God and without prayers? And all these things, all our sins hinder our prayers together. Now, if we have an unbelieving spouse, as we saw earlier in Peter here, we must bring them to the Lord in prayer. We must live a life that demonstrates the grace of God to them, to draw them to Christ. We must spend that time interceding for their soul before God. But if you are both believers, you should also pray in secret for them, but especially pray together to share your needs, your burdens, to bring them to God. You as a husband, laying them out before God on, on behalf of your family. But prayers can be hindered if you're using prayers and Scripture as a weapon against your wife. When you think you're justified to pray against your spouse. You can think of the 
Pharisee and a publican in a temple, he said, oh, I thank God that I'm not as, as bad as that man over there, that publican. And sometimes you hear husbands, Christians even, who use prayer to bring the sins of their wife to God in a way that cuts them down, an opportunity to preach at them or to try to justify their own decisions, to blame them before God in prayer. This is hypocrisy. This is sin. It's not only using that authority and leadership as a weapon, it's using religion and the intimate heart of religion, that prayer, that unity of prayer as a weapon against the person you're to be most united to. It creates the biggest division and the sharpest pains where there's supposed to be the closest union. Prayer is that intimate time of fellowship where you both come together to the throne of grace, sharing the burden of each other's hearts, coming with the same faith, with the same hope, with the same love, seeking the same Savior, being heirs together of the grace of life. These prayers, then, are not just something light, but it requires a sober-minded heart and attitude. It's not just a casual, a quick passing thing, but it's intercession with God who judges your hearts, who sees and who knows the, your heart and the heart of your spouse who sees your needs, who sees your burdens, who sees your cares, who is there to help, who is there to give grace, the grace of life. He's the God who brought you together in the union of marriage, just like He brought Eve to Adam in paradise and united them as one flesh. You come to the God before whom you made that vow that says, until death do us part, we will care for one another. When we hear this high calling of a husband, we all know we fail daily. We all know that we are guilty or in danger of committing many of the sins. But that's why lastly and seventhly we recognize the source, Christ. We must flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. For He is that great prophet, priest, and king. And all the strength that we need, the grace of life that we need as a husband, as a father, comes from Him above alone. Every good and perfect gift. And if we are called to love our spouse as Christ loved His church, that means we are to become like Christ, to follow the example that He set. You can think of verse 21 and in chapter 2, where he says, To this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. That you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. To follow Christ as the example of the husband of his church, possible only by grace, and that begins by looking daily to Christ for His grace, 
for His Holy Spirit. And here again, that old saying that says, what you are on your knees before God is what you are as a Christian and nothing more. And you can use that to say, what you are as a husband is what you are on your knees before God and nothing more. Everything that we are, everything that we need as a husband comes from God alone. Confessing our faults, our shortcomings, acknowledging our weaknesses, our frailties. That today when we will make mistakes and we come short of this high calling. We need His forgiveness for that. We need His grace to persevere. He's the one who lived on this world even though He wasn't married Himself. He lived without sin. But He is the King of His church. He fulfilled all righteousness. And then He gave Himself for His church. He laid down His life for His church as He hung on that cross, as He bore the wrath of God against our sin as He paid for the sins of His people. That includes the sins of husbands, of fathers who have sinned. That includes abusive fathers, negligent fathers, rebellious wives, contentious wives. His blood was shed for all these kinds of sins. Great sins, small sins. And His grace is sufficient for the greatest of sinners. For men who failed before marriage. For men who failed now during marriage. For men who failed after failed marriages. Christ can wash. Christ can cleanse even the most guilty of sinners. Christ can change the hearts of the most hardened sinners and husbands now. Those who are neglecting duties. He supplies with His Holy Spirit to change people like the woman at the well. The woman at the well who had five broken marriages now lived with a man not being married And yet, He could save her. She turned to become faithful to God and to others. Christ gives grace day after day, one day at a time, one husband at a time, one father at a time. God gives grace even for those who desire marriage. Men who want to be husbands. Women who want to be mothers and wives but have not yet received this grace from God. God gives grace and peace and rest, whatever He has in store for you. Christ conforms His people to His own image, and marriage or singleness are both means that God uses to conform us to His his image, to make us like Christ. He's cleansing His church day by day. One husband, one wife, one person at a time. Because marriage is that picture of His church. The ultimate marriage is that marriage to Christ, which, is, which will be realized at the end of the world, that marriage supper of the Lamb, when His whole church will be brought together. Again, I'll read Ephesians 5.25. Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify and cleanse her, with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And husbands and wives and singles can be part of this church. And if you are in Christ, you're being washed, you're being cleansed, you're being sanctified through the challenges of marriage, 
through the brokenness of marriage, through the difficulties of marriage, so that one day you can be presented to Christ without spot or wrinkle, being washed from your sin, being cleansed from your unrighteousness, to stand there and to be part of the biggest marriage ever, the church of Christ. May God then also give every one of us that grace for all our needs in whatever place the Lord has placed us and called us today. Amen.